Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about the world of advisory services and how to think outside the box, whether you go into recruiting or healthcare, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest majored in English literature, went into consulting, and before he was 30, became a CEO at a startup that actually disrupted the consulting industry and pioneered an entire business model called Software as a Service, also known as SaaS. But before I introduce you to Tom Monahan, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features career advice, insights, and inspiration, no matter what industry you're interested in and no matter what your major. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Tom Monahan, the president and CEO of DeVry University, a pioneering tech educator of adult learners with a unique focus on innovation, student care, accountability, and strategic business partnerships. Tom began his career in a very different industry from higher ed as a staff consultant at Accenture, a global professional services company providing a broad range of consulting services to businesses. After a couple years at Accenture, Tom moved to the Committee for Economic Development, known as CED. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan, business-led organization with a mission to deliver well-researched analysis and solutions to big problems faced by the U.S. and its partners. From CED, Tom pivoted back into the consulting world at another top firm, Deloitte, as a senior consultant while he studied to get his executive MBA. After graduating from New York University's Stern School of Business, Tom joined the corporate executive board known as CEB as its CEO. And as we'll hear, it was while he was at CEB that Tom pioneered something known as subscription as a service or the SaaS business model, which offered the first subscription service program to retail business executives and other business leaders in the consulting space. Tom, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am caffeinated and ready to go. Do you actually drink caffeine, Tom? I do. 
actually. Oh. But I'm at the point in the day where I've cut over to water. I've learned there's a point in the day where that finely tuned moment of just caffeinated enough without going over the edge. And I think nice. So what do you guys drink in the Monaghan household? What kind of coffee? We're Starbucks people. We're Compass Coffee people. Yeah. So we tend to get up in the morning and go out and get our coffee, which actually I've found to be, it's actually become a nice, if we're up early enough, we're empty nesters. If we're up early enough, my wife and I will go out and get it together. We'll bring the dog. It's sort of a nice way to start the day. And in changes, coffee is still about the caffeine, but it adds a mindfulness to the routine that I will say I didn't always have. I used to just guzzle coffee first thing in the morning to get caffeine in my system. Now it's a little more ritualized. Well, speaking of mindfulness, I know that meditation plays a big role in your day. Is it something that you like to do early in the morning before you get your compass or Starbucks coffee or later in the day as things unfold? You know, it's a two-step process for me. I try really hard. One of the best pieces of advice I've gotten about trying to be mindful in a professional environment was from a meditation teacher, uh, Jonathan Faust, who has been super helpful to me. He said, you know, kind of look at your calendar for the day and you'll see things you're looking forward to. Like you'll see this conversation. You say, boy, I can't wait. This is such an important mission. I can't wait for that. And you'll say, you'll see things you aren't looking forward to. I won't name names or, you know, but there'll be problematic things. And he said, sort of try to imagine how you'd like to feel at the end of the day. Just physically feel like what your emotional, mental, physical state will feel like at the end of the day. And set that as the goal for the day and then kind of handle each thing as it comes with an eye on that. And for some reason, that advice has stuck with me and been super helpful. So my general routine is set some sort of intention for the day in the morning and then find a pocket in the day to do a meditation reset because I can often, so the poem's point, your best laid plans (laughs) often go. And I find like a midday meditation reset for just even five or 10 minutes and sometimes an end of day meditation actually really helps. But that I try to start with the intention because I find that gets me thinking more broadly around what I'm hoping to accomplish and what the purpose of stuff is. I love that. I'm going to try to incorporate that into my day. I love thinking about what my state of mind will be when I wrap up the day, what I'd like it to be, and to use that as kind of a North Star. Yeah, it's been hugely helpful for me. And it also gets to, you know, recognizing Rome wasn't built in a day, how much are you actually going to get done today? Realistic. Uh, And and having that frame for the day that a lot, I can't say it's been perfect at all, but um, earlier in my career, I tended to carry too much stress with me at all times. And this is, it's not perfect closure at the end of the day, but the idea that a workday has a beginning with an intention and an end with a reflection as to how I did has helped shrink the angst maybe. How long ago did you start meditation and what role has it played in your life since? I would guess probably five years in, six years in, and you know, very imperfect practice. And I guess any teacher would say that all practices are imperfect. I think mine is especially imperfect. (laughs) I think I'm better at being imperfect than other people, I guess, maybe. And it's been really the point of meditation is not 
professional excellence, right? It's not like I'm going to doing this to get better at work. To some degree, it was to help me put work in context. I've always been passionate about what I've been doing. And at times, the stress was... This is kind of one of the more interesting challenges about a career is sometimes what begins as genuine interest in the mission and goals of what you're working on can sometimes then be crowded out by the stress of needing to accomplish stuff. And you almost forget why you... I saw a quote from Roger Federer where he said, the luxury I have is I never fell out of love with tennis. And I thought that was just, you know, so many people get burned out in their jobs. And eventually Roger Federer's physical professional athletes, even at his caliber, need to move on. But I love that. You know, how do you make sure you don't let the we're all attracted to roles and careers and steps for the quality of the work we do. And then somehow the stress can <laughs> sneak up on you. And I think, I think meditation has helped me do that. And I think it's also helped me, you know, you, you never stop thinking about work, but I think in a healthier way, I've been able to keep work in context. Last thing I'd say is, if anything, mindfulness does help you prioritize. I joke, but one of the most important strategy insights, and I think it's a good strategy insight both for professional strategy, for career strategy, for life strategy. I was at a wedding and it was in Dallas and it was a beautiful wedding. Like it was one of those over the top Texas weddings. And you can sort of, you can draw, you just kind of follow that sentence and imagine what it looks like. And I was talking to a family member of the bride and they said, are you having a nice time at this wedding? I said, gee, it's like the most spectacular thing I just do. Music and food and all that amazing stuff. And, and she said, we have a saying in Dallas, which is anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And she said it was sort of a joke, but I always laughed at that because that turns out to be not a bad principle for leadership, not a bad principle for life, not <laughs> that anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And conversely, if it's not worth overdoing, it's not worth doing. And mindfulness does really help with that. It helps you get a little distance and say, okay, yeah, if it's not heck yes, it's heck no. What is really worth time and energy, et cetera. And so the Dallas wedding principle, which I've always liked the concept of becomes a little easier to implement when I create a little distance through my meditation practice. Beautiful. So about a year ago, Tom, I interviewed another fascinating guest whose name is Steve Rimland. And Steve today is a serial entrepreneur and he has all through it been a gifted musician. And when Steve was a kid, he grew up in New Haven which is where Yale University is in Connecticut. And he got lucky because he grew up in New Haven and was mentored by a famous Yale professor of music. And that professor told Steve, who was then about eight or nine years old, Steve, there are only 12 notes. It's how you arrange them that makes the music. That's really powerful. And as Steve got older, he came to realize that that mindset about rearranging the notes to make music actually also applies to our professional lives. And as I prepared for our interview today, Tom, oh my goodness, was that concept front of my mind. Because I think you've 
been rearranging the notes for some time now. And I'd love to begin by flashing back, by flashing way back to when you were in college. You went to Harvard and you got your BA, not in music theory or composition like Steve, but in English language and literature. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated? I had absolutely no idea. It was kind of interesting. I didn't, you can safely imagine when I sort of came home and said to my parents, you're borrowing money to send me to this fancy college. I'm borrowing money to go to this fancy college. But don't worry, I'm getting a really practical degree in English. Not a healthy week at home where I had said, you know, there were other things I think my parents would have been happy to, you know, I took economics, I took other things. And they said, boy, those feel like a lot more practical. Why are you doing this? And there's probably two reasons I took English. One of which I just liked it. You know, my running joke was I want to major in a language, but I'd prefer it be one I already speak. But I also just liked it. The work, a thing I think I didn't fully understand was that when I look back on it, the nature of English education, the nature of education that I was able to benefit from, it had two features that turned out to be pretty valuable. One is it's counterintuitive, but a lot of the work was conversational. Study groups, dialogue in a class, sharing opinions about stuff. What did the author mean here? And that, and then secondly, critical thinking. How do I synthesize all that into a story or into a, into a perspective that I want to share? But I think even embarking upon it, because the, the first question you might have is, boy, you must really like sitting in a room and reading by yourself. And the answer is, to a point, I can really do love to sit down with a book for an hour, but I don't have the patience to go do seven hours in a study carol. But I do a lot of energy from the fact that interpretation is often a group activity and great professors found ways to draw that out of you. And then I like the idea of having had those conversations, resynthesizing kind of, okay, what, what do I think? Not based on my sitting in a room and staring at a wall, but based on conversations and perspectives. How do I synthesize that? into a coherent story. And it turns out that's not radically different from a lot of actual work you in the workplace, which is you know, you're dialoguing about stuff and then you have to go make a decision or you have to go chart a path forward. So I both love the what of English literature, but I also love the how, the dialogue, the synthesis. In a strange way, you know, when you're reading Paradise Lost and the professor says, what did Milton mean by this? You know, let's be clear. John Milton's dead. We don't know. <laughs> so we're assembling a perspective. In, uh, often in life and work, you're making decisions off imperfect information. How much of this are we going to sell next year? No one knows, right? So you have to sort of start to you know, hear perspectives, bring those perspectives together, formulate a view and push forward. So I, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I knew I enjoyed both the what of the work and the how of the work. So why did you decide to go into consulting? Because I know so many students, even today, especially those who are majoring in the humanities, have blinders on. And they think because that's the way higher ed is organized, you self-identify by your major. Mm -hmm. They think, I'm a history major, therefore... My choices in terms of careers are to become a history teacher. I was an English major. I could become an English teacher. But what was it about? How did consulting come onto your radar screen? 
You know, I think one thing I've learned probably the hard way is Will Rogers has a famous quote where he said, it ain't the things we don't know that get us in trouble. It's the things we know that just ain't so. And in many respects, I got more than a little lucky because I was sort of thinking, oh, I'll go be a PhD in English. I'll, I was really interested in, in Augustine satire. So I'll, be, I'll write you know, formative books about Jonathan Swift, Alexander Pope and all that stuff. And I started to look around and say, okay, that pathway, if I take a year or two and do something else, that pathway doesn't close. Pathways don't close. You know, you can always find ways to kind of, you know, work horizontally or start over. And you know, some of the most capable people I know, some of the best physicians I know were art majors in college who then had to go back and do, you know, a little bio to catch up, but became really went off and found what they wanted to do and then found their way across to get after it. And I figured, okay, this never a better time to try something than uh, at that stage, it's a luxury, right? I mean, I divide, most of our students are adult learners, so they don't have the luxury of saying, okay, I'm you know, 35 years old, I, I'm going to take a year off and do nothing. But I, I did. I had the chance to take a shot at a career that maybe wasn't perfect. I could always work my way back knowing the space of academia. But um, consulting isn't nothing. No, consulting it's a, is a no, real no, job. No, it's, it's, it's not like you job. went off and yeah. traveled the world <laughs> backpacking. You no, that's, that's got a real true. job. I went and got a real job. But one of the things that did strike me was the, you know, I had the ability to acknowledge what I didn't know. Well, I didn't know what a consultant, I didn't know what anyone did, right? I didn't have you know, the only job I'd ever seen really was English professors because <laughs> I was English, you know, and I had some terrific faculty friends who spent time, you know, with any job. And the interesting thing is I talked to my friends on the faculty was most jobs have a, an onstage side and a backstage side. Being a professor, the onstage part is incredible, right? These, I remember these incredible professors, incredible junior professors, teaching assistants, brilliant people working with teams, writing. And they were great about when I began a kind of honest ink, just say, what do you really do? Like, what's a week in the life look like? What, you know, this must be the funnest thing in the world. You're standing on a stage, you're talking about an author you have great passion for. What's that like? And they'd say, yes, that's the onstage part. There's a backstage part, which is, you know, I have to look at like the tenure track. I have to think about how often I publish. I have to think about, you know, does my department have too many people from this period in history? And therefore, I have to start looking for other colleges that have, yeah, I had a friend of mine who's a professor, she said, I find myself looking at eminent professors in my field and trying to figure out who's going to retire next so I can go to that school and be on the faculty when they retire. And I was like, oh, I didn't, I sort of thought it was all like the cool stuff and, and really learning the front stage and backstage part of a job made me say, okay, there's no, there's no Shangri-La. There's great stuff about this role and there's bad stuff about this role. Let me now take that construct, having asked faculty members what they actually do, and just ask other people what they actually do. Wander the world and say, what do you do? What does life look like? How do you spend your time? What does a great day look like? What does a bad day look like? What's the best part of your job? If you could take five meetings off the calendar, which five would they be? Why? And just beginning to try to get a perspective as to what people actually did and taking advantage of, you know, really taking advantage of the fact that I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't have any idea what any of these jobs were. I didn't know what an investment banker did. I didn't know what a consultant did. I didn't know what a lawyer did. I didn't know what a professor did. I didn't know. And that ability to, you know, use the Will Rogers thing is the most dangerous thing is assuming, you know, you know, sort of that whole into things we don't know the gets in trouble. Things we know that just ain't so. I think that's equally true from a career perspective. You start to make assumptions about what a career is like. You make those assumptions. They define you rather than saying, 
I'm going to get really curious. I'm going to bring a beginner's mind to this and just keep asking. And people, people so will. It, yeah. I'm sorry. I was going to say, yeah. so was consulting appealing to you because it had more of a buffet approach to learning about different industries and jobs where you could pick and choose different courses? I think that, you know, to some extent, it was two things. One is it was collaborative work, which I liked. It's team-based. You, you're consulting, you collaborate with the client, you collaborate with each other, you're doing your work, but you benefit a lot from that collaborative activity. And I really like that. And then it was probably three things. It's collaborative, synthetic. You get to pull all that together and kind of come up with a point of view. And then Thirdly, it does allow for reinvention. You know, that idea that, yeah, okay, I was doing an IT project for a manufacturer. I like the IT part, but maybe I didn't love manufacturing. Maybe I'll go to an IT project for a financial services company. That idea of, of allowing for reinvention, I think is more broadly true. I mean, consulting, obviously, that's a huge pitch is, you know, this is a great place to you can reinvent yourself within the four walls of the firm. My wife's been a, a leader of a major management consulting firm and has found probably six or seven different ways to reinvent herself across her career and has had, though she's been there for decades, has had a whole bunch of almost different careers. And, and that's a core piece. I think it's more, I, I don't want to, this isn't a pitch for consulting. It's actually a, it's a pitch for that actually happens more often than you would think, that there are lots of ways across the course of a career to, to reinvent yourself. Well, as you well know, Tom, Gen Z can expect to have four to five different industries that they're working in and at least 17 different jobs yeah. over the course of their lifetime. So you spent two years at Accenture and then you left to join the Committee for Economic Development, which was a nonprofit. Why did you want to move to a nonprofit? Yeah, it's really, I'm deeply motivated by the problem that I'm set against. So one of the things that I liked about CED and still like the CED still does incredible work today is they, they kind of take on big problems. You know, they take on why you know, at the time we were doing a lot of work on five-year-olds and six-year-olds in America are not uniformly well-prepared for school. And a big portion of unequal opportunity in society is the fact that you know, some six-year-olds have had their parents reading to them and have great nutrition and maybe been in enrichment activities since they were two. And some, for a variety of reasons, have not had that opportunity. And how do we, you're not going to have an equitable society unless you sort of dig into that problem. That was a, that's a massive problem. So I love the idea that CED at the time was taking on these kind of massive problems. It's a big problem and gathering really smart people to think about it, talk about it. So that, yeah, I found myself asking, what problem am I set against? Looking at the work they were doing, I was really excited by that. As I sort of flip back and forth between consulting and economic research and analysis as, as a young professional, there's two sides of the coin that you wrestle with, which is the larger, the, one, of the, one of the real challenges you face if you're motivated by problem solving, and I am, the larger the problem, the less chance you'll see it through to full completion. Right, we still haven't solved that problem. We made progress in some pieces. We've we've made some progress on childhood poverty in the U.S. There's some good things we've done, but 30 years later, that's still a problem. Whereas, you know, so, sometimes you take on a consulting project and you'd find, you know, we're having problems with treasury operations and there's too much risk in how individual transactions are held, and you can lock that 
you can solve that problem and spike the football. And I think like anybody else who's really motivated by problems, you sort of have, you kind of find your way through, you know, am I focused? I, I want to solve big problems, but I'll, I want to put some runs on the board and how you balance that out across time is, is a really interesting challenge. So I ended up going, you know, from consulting into you know, economic research and then back to consulting, partly because that issue of, you know, I just want to put, yeah, I want to get back to problems I could sort of solve on a, with a team on a 180 day cycle rather than on a 180 year cycle. Exactly. You went to Deloitte, which is another consulting firm. I'd like to return, Tom, to Steve Rimland's professor's comment about the 12 notes, because the services at CED, at least to me, sound very similar to the services that would eventually be provided by another for-profit company that you came to lead called the Corporate Executive Board, CEB, which provided consulting services like those found at Accenture, like those found at Deloitte, to banking executives and other business leaders. But there was a twist had an innovative business model. Could you elaborate on that? And do you agree? I think that's a great insight. It's funny. I ended up at, I I did not come to uh, make one quick edit to the intro, which I had not come to CEB as the CEO original guy. I I became CEO later, but that's both for the reasons of just being correcting a record, but also to tell the story of how I ended up there. I was working at Deloitte. I had left Committee for Economic Development and I got connected with a person who's now a very close friend, and he was at McKinsey at the time, and we had a conversation around what was great and what wasn't great about consulting, what we enjoyed, what we didn't enjoy, what, you know, you know kind of the classic example of kind of if I were king for a day, what would I do? How would I change this industry? And, um, you know, we kind of had the conversation. We went on with our lives and kind of went back to our day jobs. And about, I think about six months after that, maybe a year after that, brilliant entrepreneur here in Washington, D.C. named David Bradley had built what was called the advisory board company at the time and had put in place kind of the pillars of the model that both the advisory board, the education advisory board, and CEB all grew up to really embrace. Three fantastic companies grew out of this kind of three, three mighty oaks from almost one acorn, not even three acorns. But the friend was a guy named Jay McGonigal. David had reached out to Jay to recruit him to come to the advisory board. And not too long thereafter, Jay reached out to me and said, hey, remember that conversation we had over a beer? You know, about finding new ways to deliver value to clients. This is a, you know, that's what these people are working on. Why don't you come and work on it? I hemmed and hawed a little bit, but took it on. And you're absolutely right. You know, the core of some of the work that happens in in the economic policy world is assembly of big intellectual property, big data sets, you know, research that can be done once and used many times. And that creates a lot, it creates really interesting work for people, right? You're it's that you're motivated by solving that big problem going off and saying, okay, you know, what do employees really value at work? How much is compensation? How much is how their boss treats them? How much is the benefits package? How much is the quality of the work? And not just a long list of all those things, but let's put some real research against that and say, how much, a hundred pennies, where do you spend them? If you're 
designing a great career for someone. And if you create that once, that's going to be every bit as relevant to what Microsoft is doing, as it is to what Boeing is doing, as it is to what BP is doing, because you suddenly got this data set you can reuse and analyze and reuse and analyze. And so that work we did in the policy world of doing big major research projects with a front end of how do we make it relevant to each and every client was on display at the advisory board. And we really built on that at CEB when we spun off as an independent company. So you're absolutely right to sort of say we were... Rearranging the notes. (laughs) Rearranging the notes. Is it the magpie who can sort of take anything and turn it into a nest? We were sort of magpies. Most innovative companies are taking a little bit from here, a little bit from here, a little bit from here. And David had this vision of impact that you could start to really build the piece parts. David talked Jay into taking this role. Jay talked me into taking this role. And yeah, I spent two and a half decades working on the problems at hand there. So how did the idea of offering the products, the research that you were creating as a subscription service, which has since been picked up on and run with by... Netflix, Dropbox, all of these cloud-based companies. How did that idea come about? I think there's probably, you know, David had two big insights, a bunch of big insights, but I think two specifically to this profound reshaping of kind of how people pay for stuff. One is, as he was I think there's a part of David that when he set out to originally lay the foundation stones for what was advisory board and then CEB and then education advisory board, when he talked to people in the same job at different companies, they had the same problems. So the head of marketing at JP Morgan Chase has the same, some of the same problems that a marketing at Capital One, right? There's just, and they're competitors, but they also, they can benefit from the same set of information. That's the first big insight. The second big insight is, And this is, I think, David applying kind of who he is personally to applying his value set, which is quite strong, to a business model. He wanted to construct a business model that didn't feel like he was nickel and diming people. That, you know, when they needed help, it wasn't like, let me tell you what's going to cost you or that'll be $100. You know, that was a peanuts where Lucy, who had the thing, you know, you see the psychologist for five cents or whatever. He didn't want to be in the five cents a transaction, five cents a conversation model. And so he really thought about, okay, if we just sort of say, hey, you subscribe for a year, you get access to everything we're doing, it just let everyone inside the company not, not worry about picking up the phone. If the phone rings, you pick it up and you help. And I think it really, it ended up serving both sides really well, which gave the client budget certainty. How much is this going to cost me? Well, that's it. What if I call twice? Well, that's it. What if I call 10 times? That's it. (laughs) It's the budget number. And on the team side, I think David loved the idea that then you could build a culture that was all about generosity of service. It wasn't about, you know, before I answer your question, before I get you to the right person, you need to sign this contract and it's going to cost you a hundred bucks for this. But if you you want fries with it, it's going to cost you three more bucks, et cetera. So it really came out of David's desire to avoid a hyper-transactional business model so that everyone could just be about the work. And it turned out, I mean, those principles have really undergirded the SaaS revolution, right? Which is on one side, budget certainty. On the other side, take Salesforce as an easy example, but Salesforce is always making its product better and simple to use. It's easy to contract. 
they're just about enriching the package. And you've seen that obviously in the information sector with Bloomberg, right? Just every year there's new stuff in the Bloomberg package. And I think that really was driven by, David is obviously a great business person, but that one actually came out of his values. I don't think there was like a, I think he thought it would make business sense, but it really came from who he was and what he thought, what sort of company he wanted to build and what he wanted clients, we call the members to experience. Well, you helped to lead that company, CED, which has since been sold, I guess in 2017, when you decided to leave as well after 20 years, you led it as CEO and as chairman and CEO for over two decades, right? Mm-hmm. You, were, you were there. Why did you stay so long, Tom? And do you think if you were graduating in today's job market, we're doing this interview in mid-September of 2022, that that would still happen? Sure. I mean, probably the overarching lesson from that experience is a pretty meaningful portion of the people listening to this conversation are going to spend the bulk of their careers working in industries that don't exist yet or jobs that don't exist yet. Right? Just by definition, you know, if someone had said to me when I graduated college, you know, do you think you'll spend a couple of decades in this business? I would have been like, what is that? And they're like, it doesn't exist. So don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> There's no way to... Yeah, and I think even within companies that exist, what I was doing at Accenture way back when, no one does. Accenture has hundreds of thousands of employees and absolutely not one of them does any of the stuff I did. So you sort of look and say, well, boy, either whole new companies or even with existing companies, you know, what people are working on changes dramatically. I was talking to a um, chief technology, chief information officer and, and head of transformation for a big utility who's an alumni of, of DeVry. And he said, you know, the funny thing is we're a utility. So at the end of the day, we make sure people have light and heat. He said, but if you look at the jobs in the utility, think back to when we were kids or there are people who'd run around and do meter read. And it turns out those have all been swapped out. They're now all device-based that kind of relay information back about usage. He said, no more meter readers, but hundreds of data analysts digesting that data because now it comes in a format that you can use to understand, to make recommendations about conservation, to make recommendations about network effectiveness, to understand loads, et cetera. And he said in hundreds of people who have to fix these things because they break a lot more off. He said, you know, there's the net number of employees is almost exactly the same. The number of people doing the exact same job is zero. And I think that just, you sort of look and say, you have to sort of get comfortable with the fact that whatever job you're going to be doing 20 years from now simply doesn't exist today. There's you know, the odds that it exists are close to zero, and you just have to be prepared for that to be true because your ability to forecast your own career at a 20 or 30 year time horizon is pretty limited. And how wonderful to yeah. think <laughs> that the jobs, the number, the net number of jobs at that major utility is still the same, which really speaks to the importance for all of us of every age to keep front of mind the need to reskill and upskill. Mm-hmm. Learning is not going to end when you get your diploma. Yep, it's going to continue. You know a lot about preparing students for today's job market, Tom, because for the last two years, as we've mentioned, you've been the president and CEO at DeVry. What do you think? is the message 
that DeVry students are taking with them when they walk across the stage, virtual or otherwise, at the end of the time that they spent at your institution? Yeah, I think they probably take away two really important messages. One is, yeah, if you think of a university education, you get especially a school like DeVry, where we put a lot of energy into very specific professional skills. But universities basically sell a bundled product. They sell two things, you know, if you will, sell. They provide two things. One is an education. The other is skills. Those... Isn't that the same thing? I don't think so. I think I'll use, you know, we have a really robust cybersecurity program. And if you graduate today, you know, with a bachelor's in information technology, with a cyber focus. You have tools you know how to use that are, you know, I'd call them training focused tools. So you can be a master of Splunk or something. You know, you really, you really understand that. But you also have a set of critical thinking skills and communication skills. And tools come and go. You know, whatever data analytics platform you're using today, a year from now, there could be a better one or five years from now, there could be a better one. But that critical thinking skill of, okay, think about in cyber, you know, where are the weak points in our system? You know, how do we think, where could threats come from? You know, what's the right day to do patching? How should I think about relative risk of a threat versus the risk to our business of just shutting everything down while we patch? I mean, those, those are all critical thinking skills. So I think a student walking across the stage probably has two big messages they'll hear from our faculty. One is you've got a set of tools you can put to use immediately, but equally important, you have a set of resources that ought to enable you to thrive and grow across time. If the software package you happen to be a specialist in becomes less popular, nothing is going to erode your ability to think critically, to communicate effectively, to make good decisions. And you might have to get what I call booster shots on whatever software package, right? We put in place a program called the Career Compact at DeVry, where in your lifelong access to career services, you have lifelong access to curated education in your field of study, because we know you're going to come back. We know that whatever software package you learned in 2022 will be out of date by 2027. It's there waiting for you when you want to come get the next one, but nothing will ever get in the way of your critical thinking skills, your collaboration skills your ability to problem solve, your ability to have judgment, your ability to have ethics and make decisions consistent with the values of your organization. So I think universities have those two roles and different universities prioritize them differently, right? But I think every university graduate walks across the stage with more of each than they think they have probably. I look back and say, gosh, I had some pretty relevant work skills as an English major, but I didn't even think of myself as having them. What advice do you have for college students, not only at DeVry, Tom, but at colleges and universities all over the U.S. and around the world? Is there one class or two classes, subjects that they should be taking to hone certain skills or develop certain subject matter expertise? I think there's no substitute for two basic pillars of professional success. One is communications ability. Any number of classes teach that. So it, it could be a communications class, could be an English class, could be, could be just embedded. Second is what I'll call quantitative literacy. The idea that I'm comfortable, this does not mean you need to be a math person, but I need to be comfortable with facts and analysis. I need to be able to understand quantitative methods. I think that's really, really important. Third thing I put out there is working with people. One of the hard things about being in the university setting is, and I feel for our faculty, I've been on both sides of this, right? As a student, 
the dreaded group project because yeah, suddenly you're working with people and you're, you know, not everyone has different skills and you're having to form and storm and norm. And yeah, it's just easier to write the darn paper yourself, right? But the group project always feels like, oh God, do I really have to do a group project? And you know, that, that's going to take twice as much time. And at the end of the group project, everyone is pretty convinced they did all the work anyway. And faculty who are like, you know, look, it's not, it's not easy. But our faculty, if, I, if I, any of my deans are here with me on the call, they'd say, as it turns out, life is a group project. So you're going to do a lot of, I'm going to make you do group projects because that's what, you know, that's how work gets done. Uh, and those, those are probably the three big ones. Can I communicate effectively? Can I understand and manage quantitative and, and, and fact-based literacy? And can I, can I work in teams? Those are the three. It's hard to point to any career that doesn't require you drawing on those three capabilities. Well, speaking of three, I have three final time for coffee questions. These are questions that I try to ask all of my guests. The first one, Tom, what is the best career advice you've ever gotten? I'll throw two things out there. One is develop and cultivate a personal board of directors. Who do you turn to for advice in your career? Because you know, and often it can be peers, it can be a mentor or two, but just making sure when you hit a big career choice, you know, just getting perspective, asking questions, figuring out, and that becomes a launch pad for, you know, getting that, you know, what do these jobs really mean to do? So cultivate a personal board of directors is thing one. Thing two is anyone who's familiar with basketball knows about the pivot foot, that you can move one foot all you want, but one foot has to stay planted. And I've found most career transitions when I'm counseling people, this idea that someone gave me of, you know, think about the pivot foot. Don't try to move both feet as once as you change careers. Keep one foot planted, but the other foot can go wherever it is. So if you are a technology specialist, but you want to change industries, see if you can use the technology angle to get into a new industry. And then if you like that industry, you can change out of technology. <laughs> but, but that idea that you, know, you can always use the pivot foot when you make career choices turned out to be incredibly valuable. Love it. Could you share a time in your professional lifetime, which clearly has been phenomenally successful when you, let's say, struggled or failed, fell flat on your face, dropped the ball. And what's most important in this example is how you recovered and if there was a lesson that you may have learned in the process. Failure is a weekly activity. Most successful organizations routinize failure. Right, I think about everything they do, products fail, sales pitches fail, and you just have to get exceptionally comfortable that failure is going to be your traveling companion throughout your career. One that really, there are so many failures entwined in this that it's almost hard to pull out the thread, but I had to go through a difficult restructuring at a, at a prior company, and uh, the restructuring had to get done. No two ways about it. I handled it poorly. And in this day and age, you get a lot of feedback online around how, you know, how you handled it. And so, you know, it's just, and it's hard. Like if you're a human being, it's hard to sort of see stuff online about, you know, mistakes you've made and, you know, kind of lives forever and all that stuff. So I probably one of the most significant failures I had was I handled a, every leader has been through restructuring efforts and I handled this one poorly from the standpoint of communications, uh, from the standpoint of making sure everyone knew what we were doing and why. And kind of, you know, both online and 
from people I trusted got some pretty negative feedback. And, and, uh, and that really stayed with me. And then I compounded the failure <laughs> as, if, as if the failure wasn't bad enough. Sat down with my board director and said, I, you know, I, I did a really bad job here. And I sort of wallowed in with my board director. And one director, so I deeply respect, pulled me aside and said, close the book, write the summary in your head, like of the two things you learned and move on. Stop wallowing. You know, so I compounded the failure by wallowing in the failure. And that was, it was great. Like it was great. He basically said, look, you had to get the work done. You did the work. You didn't do it as well as you should have. You missed a bunch of stuff. Water under the bridge. Write two notes to yourself. Throw the book in the trash and move on. And I think that's probably the most important lesson I learned is that you'll make mistakes. Don't compound them by wallowing. Mine them for experience and move on and try not to make the same mistake twice. Fantastic advice. I am a fellow wallower. I used to wallow a whole lot and have tried to incorporate that mindset into my current work. Thank you so much for sharing that, Tom. Final question. If you could go back to Harvard and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I think about that a lot. And we started with meditation, I'll end with meditation, which is yeah, the, the meditation concept, beginner's mind. A core tenet that reverberates through meditation literature is, you know, kind of have a beginner's mind. You know, don't assume you know anything and therefore be exceptionally curious. What I've come I've come to realize the most important professional skill that I see is curiosity, the ability and in honest curiosity, not presuming you know stuff, but say uh, and I think it matters as a strategist because you say, okay, what, what's really happening? Let's not bring our own preconceptions to what's happening in the marketplace. Let's, re- let's really understand it. And it also, I think, works interpersonally, which is, do I really understand somebody? Have I really learned everything I can about them? And if I'm going to work with them or motivate them or lead them? So I, I just, you'll never have a better excuse to be naive and curious than to be a college student. And if you can preserve that, that's incredibly powerful to have that beginner's mind, to have a curious outlook, to really ask tons of questions, to assume you don't know anything. The only assumption you should make is you don't know anything and therefore keep asking. I think it's probably the most important thing I would, I would teach myself. I had a lot of preconceptions that, you know, again, it's, uh, it's the Will Rogers things it, and things we don't know that get us in trouble. It's things we know that just ain't so. It's, uh, mo- most of the places I got myself into trouble were things I knew that just weren't so. I love that. And there's that other Will Rogers quote, that is, we're all ignorant, just about different things. Yeah, that's a great one. That's exactly right. Tom, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community, the work that you are doing now at DeVry. And I can't wait to see the arrangement of those 12 notes or rearrangement of those 12 notes is so important. And the advice that you've shared with us today is equally important. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a great conversation. And I appreciate the community making time for us. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at 
time, the number four, coffee.org, or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. 